Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our pulpit ministry podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives. If you would, turn to the Gospel of John in the 18th chapter of John's Gospel, and we will begin looking this morning, and we will cover verses 1 through 11. And just so that you can be brought up to where we are, in case you have forgotten, we are closing the portion of Scripture in John's Gospel of the intimate moments that Jesus had with His disciples prior to the cross. We know that we have seen the Lord and His closest followers there in that upper room, and they observed the Passover together, and then at that Passover meal, after Judas exited the building to go and betray Christ, we know that Jesus then showed the full extent of His love to the others that were there. He washed their feet and He showed them His love for them. And then we saw, as we have covered the last few lessons, His prayer after He teaches them the depths of His heart toward them. In John 17, He begins to pray for those who are with Him. We have looked at that in four different parts as the true Lord's prayer was unfolded. He prayed for those believers who were there with Him, and then we know this, we learned last week, He prayed for us. Man, what a privilege to think that 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed for all who would believe through the message of the apostles. And as a believer, I know that includes me. And every time I think of that, I am then placed back in a position of awe and humility that he would even consider me for anything other than the hell that I deserved, but yet that he would pray for me. And he would then follow his prayer with the act of obedience and going and dying on the cross so that I could be saved through his substitutionary atonement. And so in verse Chapter 18, verse 1, we're going to see this. We're going to see somewhat of a transition take place here. That intimate time with his followers is going to close. And he's going to take another step toward the cross. He's going to take his walk to the Garden of Gethsemane, up the Mount of Olives there. He's going to be betrayed by a kiss from Judas. Though John doesn't record that detail, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that detail. We know as John has done, John seeks to teach us another aspect of the Christ. And he started teaching us this aspect all the way back in chapter 1, and that is the deity of Christ, the fact that He is divine in His nature. John 1.1 1, 1 told us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is not going to veer off of that path, even though this is a time of transition. Jesus is about to be arrested. And even in his arrest, John wants us to know that on that day that this lynch mob came, 
to arrest Jesus of Nazareth? They really arrested the Son of God. They really arrested the Son of God only because, as we will see, because he allowed them to. There are many details that are of great significance in this passage, and we are going to look at them, and we are going to look at some theological thoughts today about this passage, and I hope that we will see it differently than maybe we have ever seen it. But John wants us to know this is one more place in this gospel where Jesus is revealing who he really is. Many would say that Jesus never claimed to be God. You're going to have a hard time arguing that point after this because not only is he going to again claim to be God, he's going to present evidence that he is God all in this one setting. And I want us to pay close attention to that because it reveals to us the true nature of Christ. So let's jump right in so that we can get started. Verse 1 of chapter 18, it says, When he had finished praying, Jesus left his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. Now just note this, for your own personal study, the Kidron Valley was a valley that was located there on the eastern side of Jerusalem, and it would have flown to the south as things drained from the city. You can imagine uh, there was no um, modern sewer system like we have. Pipes would have just been stuck through the wall, and things would have drained out into this valley. But not only that, During this time of year was the time of Passover, and during Passover we know that sacrifice was made at the temple. And historical accounts reveal this, that during this time of year that blood would have flown as the drainage system from the temple would have ran down into that same valley, taking everything south. Blood would have flown into the Kidron Valley. And Jesus here, as he is crossing over this valley, seeing this blood flowing out of the walls of Jerusalem into this ravine, had to think about the fact that all of the blood of sacrifice throughout the ages has pointed to what he is about to do. In fact, many confirm that the blood during this time would flow so thick through that valley that it was almost black because it was so much Blood from the sacrifice, and Jesus there viewing that with his disciples, knowing full well, as we will see in a moment, what was about to take place. It says that he and his disciples crossed the Kidron Valley, and on the other side there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. He had often met there with his disciples, and Judas knew of this place, It's interesting that that's exactly where Jesus went. If Jesus was trying to delay anything, this was not not the place that he would have went. But his hour has come, as he has already proclaimed to his disciples, and this now is the hour. And he knows that Judas Iscariot is going to rat him out and turn him in there in this olive grove located in the Garden of Gethsemane there at the Mount of Olives. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priest and the Pharisees. Just so you understand what's going on here, there is a detachment of soldiers. These are Roman soldiers, and these are the Roman soldiers who would have been stationed at the Antonio Fortress during this time of year. These soldiers generally not amassed here in Jerusalem, but we know it was the time of Passover. And the Romans were 
deathly afraid of the Jews revolting against them. So during these times of festivals, they would bring from Caesarea by the sea, they would bring detachments of soldiers to keep the peace. And now these peacekeeping soldiers have been turned into an arresting party to go out and to arrest Jesus. And why is he being arrested? Because the officials, those of the chief priests and the Pharisees, the temple guard or the temple police, had instructed them to do so. They are aiding them in going and finding this Jesus of Nazareth who is causing up so much of a stir. I mean, can you imagine a miracle worker who lives a perfect life causing such a stir, but yet that's what he's doing. And here they come, and it says that this mob of people made up of these soldiers and officials from the chief priests and Pharisees were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Well, they came out as if they were trying to seek and to find and to serve a warrant to a hardened murderer or some type of a hardened criminal. It doesn't sound like they're going to find the Prince of Peace. And here they come. Verse 4 says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? I love this. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to them, went out and asked, who is it that you want? He knew who they wanted. That's why John included it first. He already knew all. But he went out and he said, who do you want? This is for a purpose. Watch. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. It's important that you see that John noted that Judas Iscariot was standing there with them because we're going to see in a moment that these were enemies of Christ. And there's a very important aspect of that that we will see. Verse 7 says again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Interesting, they used this common name again, Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't say Jesus, the son of the living God. They didn't say Jesus, God incarnate. They used a common name, Jesus of Nazareth. You know, the one whose mother was Mary and his father was Joseph. He's no big deal, but he has caused this insurrection by his blasphemy, and we are here to take him. Jesus says in verse 8, I told you that I am he. Jesus answered, if you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. He said, if you're looking for me, I'm right here. Don't bother them. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Peter, my man. Huh? Right? He had already said, Lord, I'm going to die for you. And the Lord said, no, Peter, you're going to deny me. Now, Peter's trying to prove a point here. I'm going to show him. I'm going to show him that. I'm, I'll even die for him. I'm going to take out my sword and cut off his ear, just totally defying every lesson that Jesus has already taught him up until this point. We know that Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus actually picks the guy's ear up, puts it back on his head, and heals him. Peter pulls out his sword, cuts off the right ear, and we know that it was a servant named Malchus. Then Jesus commanded Peter in verse 11, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He said, Peter, put your sword away. We know in other accounts it says, put your sword away. If you live by it, you're going to die by it. Don't, don't live by violence, Peter. 
There's some things that have to happen, and this is one of those things. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, in this short text, we see that John is doing what John has done all through the gospel and will continue to do to the end of his gospel, and that is to reveal to us who Jesus Christ really is. Jesus is going to, through this, reveal who he is in three ways. And I want you to see those ways as John records them. And I want you to pay close attention to, him, to them. I don't want you to get caught up in theological terms. But these theological terms that we're going to use, we're going to use them because they matter. You're going to see they matter to understanding what's going on here. So the first thing that we see in this text in verses 1 through 4, and 1 through 4, let me remind you, Jesus finished praying. They crossed over the Kidron Valley. They're on the other side in that olive grove where Judas knew that he was going to be, where they had been oftentimes together. And Judas came to the grove, and he was the leader of the pack, guiding all of the detachment of the soldiers and the officials who had come from the chief priests and the Pharisees who were carrying torches and lanterns and swords and Who knows what else? It just says weapons. They meant business. And here they come after Jesus of Nazareth. They had heard all kind of awful things about him. Uh, Perhaps they had heard that he turned the water into wine at Cana. Perhaps they had heard that he healed an invalid who was an invalid for nearly 40 years. Uh, Perhaps they had heard of all of the stories of him walking on water and touching the sick and the lame. Oh, what a criminal he was. Here they are coming out to get him. And it says in verse 4, Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him. Knowing all that was going to happen to him, he went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus reveals who he is in this passage, firstly, watch this, by his omniscience. His omniscience, that's a fancy theological word that means he knows everything. It says knowing all that was going to happen. Why is this important? Why is it important that we notate that Jesus knew everything that was going to happen? Here's the reason why it's important. There is only one who knows all, and it is God who is omniscient. Jesus is showing here by his complete knowledge that he is God omniscient. He knows all things. This is confirmed here by his status. What is his status? All-knowing. He is all-knowing sovereign God. Jesus knew everything that was about to happen. No one less than God, John is making this very clear, no one less than God can ever say about themselves that they are all-knowing. Though many of us, if we are not careful in our pride, will be know-it-alls. We are not all-knowing. There's only one all-knowing, omniscient God, and Jesus is revealing himself as that God incarnate once again. He knew all things, and it's just interesting that he knows all things and then asks them. He just sets it up. Who are you looking for? He knew exactly who they were looking for. He went there to be arrested. He had already told his disciples because he already knew everything that was going to happen. He had already told the disciples, my hour has come. And within that hour, here he is, about to be wrongly arrested, wrongly accused, wrongly tried, and wrongly murdered. But he knew it all. 
Now, he didn't learn it. Did you catch that? He didn't say Jesus had learned what was going to happen to him. <laughs> An all-knowing, omniscient God doesn't have to learn anything. He is all wise. He already knows. And he knew it was going to happen, all of the details surrounding it, exactly how it was going to happen. Watch this. In eternity past. He knew it. And here is that moment. And no one less than God, as I have already said, can make that claim. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20 tells us this. Speaking of God, for God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. It is God who knows everything, and there is no man but the God-man who could claim to know everything. And it says that He did. He knew all that was about to happen. Acts chapter 1, verse 24 as they were praying there, it says, Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. You know everyone's heart. Can I tell you today that God knows every one of your hearts today, including mine? He knows those of you who really don't want to be here today and adore him and to thank him for what he did for us. He knows those of you who are hiding wicked, dark things in your heart. He knows those of you whose hearts have been cleansed and purified by his precious blood. He knows everything. And in knowing everything, Jesus is confirming for us his status. And what is his status? Omniscient. Omniscient. Just as Psalm 139 describes the omniscience of God, verse 1 says this, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise and you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down and you are familiar with all my ways. Oh, what an interesting thought. Before a word is ever on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. You hem me in behind and before you have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge, the psalmist said, is too wonderful for me and any other human being. It is too wonderful for us to even begin to attain or to comprehend. And here we see Jesus displaying that type of knowledge, revealing who he really is. He is omniscient God in flesh. Jesus knew exactly how all of this would play out. You remember, they tried to catch him on many occasions, and it wasn't yet time, and he did not allow it, but here he is, and he goes back to this place, knowing that this is where he would be betrayed with a kiss and be arrested. And he walks willfully to that place, knowing everything that was about to happen. He knew everything, every detail, every thought, every plan of those who hated him. And he submitted to it, knowing all things. This confirmed his status as the omniscient God in flesh. It confirmed also his situation. The situation here, it seemingly, when we read it, seems as if Jesus was kind of helpless. Here's Jesus. And here's this mob of what some estimate to be even hundreds. It could be anywhere from two to 400 people coming to arrest him. But this situation that did not catch him off guard because he is omniscient did not leave him helpless. Aren't you thinking that our God is never helpless? He's never hopeless? 
Here he is, not in a helpless situation. In fact, Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, Jesus makes this very clear. He says in verse 53, Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? A few hundred Roman soldiers against 12 legions of angels, uh, they're not going to match up. Oh, I've seen one angel in Scripture do way more damage than that. Jesus is letting us know this. I know everything that's going to happen, and I'm not helpless in that situation. That's for all the people who, who think that God is somehow helpless. He's not helpless because he's omniscient. He knows everything. He is always ahead of wicked men and their schemes, and he was ahead of them because he is sovereign in his knowledge. He knew all that was going to take place why? Because in the eternal counsel of the past, the triune Godhead at some point in time had already determined and designed the plan of redemption, and he knew that at this moment it was already decreed in the wise counsel of God that he would be arrested and be handed over to wicked men as we read about in our scripture reading in Acts. According to the will of God. He knew it. Nothing was happening that was out of his control or that he didn't allow to happen. What comfort that is for us. If you're in Christ, there is nothing that is out of the control of Christ. Rest in it. Rest in his providence. Rest in his omniscience. Oh, you may be shocked by it. And rightfully so. You're not the omniscient one. He's not shocked by it. He knows all things. John chapter 10, verse 17. Remember this? He says this, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Watch what he says in 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Nothing happens that is out of his knowledge or his control. He wasn't going there to the garden, and all of a sudden, these soldiers jumped out from behind the bushes, and he said, oh no, they're here to get me. He knew they were coming. That's why he was there. He met them there because he knew that his time had come. He was to endure that cross. We'll see the sovereign knowledge of God here. and Worship him. Because of that sovereign knowledge, I remember a song we used to sing entitled The Beautiful, Terrible Cross. And I love the song, and I love the lyrics of the song because it is a beautiful cross, but it is a terrible cross. And you can't separate the two. But one of the lines in that song says, There on that beautiful, terrible cross, though darkness was strong on that hill, you remain sovereign Lord, still in control as your perfect plan was fulfilled. I want you to think about that for a second. Jesus is not unsovereign here. He's all-knowing and sovereign, even in this situation. He was not in a situation where he was helpless and hopeless and didn't know what to do. He was not in need of anything. Why? Because God is not in need of anything. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He never has. He never will. You say, wait a second, I thought God needs us. Wrong. It is a privilege that we get to have a relationship with him. But do you know this? In eternity past, he was sufficient in and of himself. 
He didn't need anything. I'm so thankful that he chose to have a relationship with me. What a privilege it is to have a relationship with a God who is in need of nothing and who knows all things and is sovereign over all. Here Jesus is, and he's not helpless. He's in complete sovereign control because of his complete omniscience. And this knowledge proved, once again, that he is and was truly God in flesh. Secondly, not only did Jesus reveal who he is in this passage through his omniscience, the fact that he is the all-knowing God, but he also reveals it in the fact that he is also omnipotent. He is the almighty God. Jesus reveals who he is in this passage by his omnipotence. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, as we look at this account again, it says, they ask him in the last part of 4, who is it you want? Verse 5 says, Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, and Jesus says, I am he. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They drew back and fell backwards at his word. I want you to pay close attention to this. He is revealing here that he is almighty God. And you see that when he speaks, men fall backward from his word. Job chapter 42 verse 2 says this, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. He is almighty God. And Jesus is revealing that he is almighty God in flesh right here. And this is displayed through the power of his word. When he spoke the term here, I am, and we ought to know that term by now, Ego I me. He spoke it. Did you know this? I am he in the original. It does not contain he. That is added so that we can understand he's meaning himself. It actually says, I am. Ego I me. This is the Greek equivalent as we have learned of the Hebrew term that's used in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when Jesus said from the burning bush, when Moses said, who do I tell him sent me? And he said, I am that I am. Yahweh. He said, you tell him Yahweh sent you. You tell him the one true God sent you. They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus lets them know you found a whole lot more than just a guy from Nazareth. I am the true and living God. I am and when he said, I am, ego, I, me, they, all of the mob, including Judas, his arch enemy now, who once was a friend, including Judas, fell backward. Why is it interesting that John included that in those parentheses that Judas was there with him? Because Psalm 27, the psalmist reveals a prophecy about this. It says in verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. 
That is a prophetic instance in a psalm that is pointing exactly to what we see happen here. That's why John included, it was all of his enemies. It wasn't just the Romans, and it wasn't just the officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. It was also Judas Iscariot. And when he said, I am, they all fell backward at the power of his word. I don't know about you, but I think that they felt the weight of his claim, if you know what I mean. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He said, well, you found God. You found God. You have found God incarnate. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, as Peter proclaimed. When Jesus speaks, he speaks the word because he is the word of God Almighty. He is revealing here by his spoken word, his omnipotence, that he is almighty. Remember John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. When he speaks here, he is speaking as no less than God. Please pay attention to that. John has not left his theme. He's wanting you to understand this, and we're going to see in a moment why, because there's some great application to this, and why we should understand who Jesus is. His almighty, omnipotent God revealed and displayed through the power of His Word. Psalm 33, 6 says this, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry hosts by the breath of His mouth, and He gathers the waters of the sea into jars, and He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, and let all the people of the world revere Him. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. The psalmist here in Psalm 33 wants us to see the almighty power of the word of God. He spoke and it came to be. We can go back to the Genesis account. When he said, let there be light, you know what there was? Not a flicker of light. There was light. Exactly as he decreed. Because his word is powerful, and he unleashes his almighty power through his word. You're changed today if you're a believer because someone preached the almighty word of God, and that word was unleashed by God through his Holy Spirit, and when it was unleashed, it went to the depths of your heart, cutting you to the very quick and it changed you forever. Don't tell me that the Word of God doesn't have power because when the Word of God was powerfully preached in my life, God used that to reveal His almighty power through His Word. And it is power to change even the most wretched, miserable sinner. And I can testify to that. His Word, as Hebrews says, in chapter 12, 4, verse 12, it says that the Word is living it's active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword and it penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. His word is powerful and he's making that so clear here through John's testimony so that you will see it and not miss it. Revelation 19, verse 15, those men who are in the room who are traveling through Revelation with us and have been for quite some time now, uh, you know this passage that I'm going to reference here in chapter 19. In 19, we know that Christ is going to return to the earth, and as Zechariah says, he's going to set foot on the Mount of Olives, and then he's going to go out, and he's going to go to the Valley of Megiddo, 
the valley of Armageddon, the Jezreel Valley, where he will slay the wicked. And how is he going to slay the wicked who are upon the earth? Watch what verse 15 of 19 says. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter, and he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. What is that sword? That sword is his word. And it is his word that reveals his omnipotent, almighty power. When Jesus spoke, I am, they fell backwards showing that he truly is the son of God, that he is the second person of the Trinity come to this earth to rescue all who would believe through an old rugged cross. He shows them that through his word. He omnipotently spoke and the earth was created. And here he omnipotently speaks and his enemies fall backward. This is displayed through the power of his word, but it's also displayed through his authority. Watch his authority here. Many times people read this and they miss it. But you see his authority here in verse 8. It says, I told you that I am he. And Jesus answered, if you were looking for me, then let these men go. Verse 9 says, this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Watch what Jesus does there. He flexes his authority. He flexes his omnipotent authority. He didn't allow them to take his disciples. Telling me this, that they came there to also take his disciples. Why would they send hundreds of men with lanterns and torches and weapons, if they just thought that they were going to apprehend one man who would give no resistance. Oh, we saw that that wouldn't be the case when Peter drew his sword giving resistance. Yet he's displaying his authority. You know what he's telling them here? I keep my promises. When I make a promise, there's no one who can counter that promise. It's going to happen. He said, if you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, I already told you I am he. I'm who you're looking for. But you're not going to touch these. And the reason that you're not going to touch these who are with me, because I have promised to keep and to protect them by the authority that I have. By my omnipotent power, I am not letting you touch them. You have to let them go. And why do you have to let them go? Verse 9 tells us because he had already promised that he was going to take care of them. Remember John chapter 6, verse 39? John 6, 39 says this, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Oh, what a promise from Christ. He's going to lose none of all who have been given to him. He's making that very clear here. You have no power over these. The only reason that you have power over me is because I'm letting you do this, but I'm not letting you touch them. He is omnipotent God, and he is showing that here through his authority. John chapter 10, verse 28, he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. What a promise that he gives to the true believer, those who the Father has given unto him, that his omnipotent hand will never be pried open and they will never be taken away from him. Over all the people who want to believe that you can lose salvation, let me just tell you this, the day that Christ becomes not an omnipotent Savior, you can lose salvation. And the day that the Father becomes not an omnipotent Father, you can lose salvation. But Jesus said it like this, no man shall pluck them from my hand, and no man shall pluck them from the Father's hand. So if you're going to be plucked 
which you can't, unless you're almighty and you're not, they're going to have to pry you from the hands of Christ, and then they're going to have to pry you from the hands of the Father, and it's not going to happen. They are co-equal in their almighty power. They are omnipotent God. He's making that very clear. You can't have these. They belong to me, and I've made them a promise. Remember in 17, verse 12, when he was praying for them? He says, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. By that name you gave me, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. He made it very clear. And my job is to protect my own. And aren't you thankful today that our shepherd protects his own? That we are secure in him. Why? Because we're good? Because we deserve it? No, we're secure in him because he has promised that his omnipotent, almighty power will keep us secure. They were secured by his omnipotence. He spoke, and they were secured. He said, let these men go. Do you notice there was no rebuttal there? No, we want them to. Let these men go. They left. There was no rebuttal. You're really going to talk back to a guy who he says, I am, and you fall down, you get back up, and then he tells you, you can't have my friends? Are you really going to talk back to that guy? Truth be told, these people had never seen anything like that. They had never seen an omnipotent God flex in the way that Jesus is flexing here. He has their attention. Unfortunately, he doesn't have their repentance. I want to be a great story if immediately they dropped all their swords and their lights and their, and their torches and just fell at his feet and worshipped him in repentance. That didn't happen, unfortunately. What he did do, he secured his own. He flexed his omnipotent power to show them, I am God Almighty. I'm not just Jesus of Nazareth. You came looking for a historical figure. These were the people who say, Jesus was a good man, lived a life in Nazareth, and he was a, probably a prophet. But I don't know if he was really God. That's kind of a stretch, isn't it? Unless you read the Word of God and you see what it says. And it is his omnipotent power that is on display here. He defeats a whole regiment of soldiers with a spoken word, showing you exactly who he is. And then by his authority and his sovereign power, he says, don't touch my friends. And they escaped. His power proved that he was truly God in flesh. Thirdly, and lastly, Jesus not only revealed who he is in this passage recorded by John, who he truly is by his omniscience and his omnipotence. Watch the last two verses. He proves who he is and reveals who he is in this passage by his obedience. By his obedience. Verse 10 says this in regard to his obedience. Then Simon Peter, who had the sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. So many times people get so caught up in that little detail that they miss the next statement. Peter did what any of us would do. They came to unjustly arrest our friend. We're going to try to defend our friend, but it wasn't Peter's place. The father's going to defend the son, just as he promised. Verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? I want you to see the obedience of the Son to the Father. Watch this. Perfect obedience. 
Oh, when we see his perfect obedience on display, it shows us who he really is. He is the Holy One come from the Father, just as he has claimed. He said, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Peter's saying, but your cup is to die. Let me help you. I don't need your help, Peter. I am not helpless in this situation. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Well, God forbid. This is the will of the Father. Of course I shall drink it. It's my destiny. Oh, do you know it was Christ's destiny? In fact, it was predestined again in eternity past that he would come at this very moment and that all of these events would transpire exactly how they have. Peter's wanting to get in the way of that. Oh, how many times have you tried to get in the way of God's providence? Put your sword away. He doesn't need your help. This was his destiny. John chapter 12, when we were there, remember with me verse 27, when Jesus said, now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Jesus knew what he was destined to do, and that was that he was destined to die as a substitutionary atonement for the sin of all who would believe. He was not going to let Peter get in the way of that. He was not going to let anything get in the way of his obedience. He is perfect in the area of obedience. We see this as he submitted to the Father's will. It says, the Father has given me this cup. This was the Father's will. And that is exactly what the Son came to do. The will of the Father. You remember back in John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus himself said this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. He came to execute the will of the Father, and the will of the Father was to crush the Son. It was to crush the Son. It was his plan that Jesus be offered up as the only begotten Son of God as a sacrifice. It is the sacrifice that the whole Old Testament pointed to in its entirety. Luke 22, verse 42. Jesus praying this, Father, if you were willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours will, your will be done. That's perfect obedience. Not my will, but your will be done. Anyone here could ever make the claim that you have always lived your life in perfect obedience? No, but Christ can. And in seeing his perfect obedience, it reveals to us who he truly is. Do you know he is the only acceptable sacrifice? Why? He is the only perfectly obedient lamb without spot and without blemish, period. And John is showing us this at Christ's arrest, through his obedience, exactly who he is, because he submitted to the Father's will. Oh, I would have done good to make it this far. Right? About the time Judas betrayed me, I would have just balled up in the fetal position and cried because my best friend bailed on me. But no, Christ continues to walk toward the cross. Why? Because it's the Father's will. Remember, knowing exactly what's going to happen. He submitted to the Father's will, proving his obedience and revealing that he is the Holy One, but also he 
He suffered the Father's wrath. He suffered the Father's wrath. Many people like to teach this heresy, and sometimes they do it inadvertently, that the devil was the one behind crushing the Son under his meanness and wickedness. Don't give the devil that honor. It was the will of the Father to crush the Son. And in crushing the Son underneath his wrath, he saved the many. Remember what Jesus said, unless this kernel falls to the ground and dies. No other fruit is going to come up from that kernel. Aren't you thankful today that Christ was obedient to suffer under the wrath of God in our place? He even speaks of this when he speaks of the cup of God's wrath in this verse. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the cup of wrath. This is the cup of wrath that we see all throughout Scripture that belongs to the wicked and the ungodly. Let's look at it. Psalm 75 verse 8 talks about this cup. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. This is the cup of wrath that belongs to the wicked. Isaiah chapter 51 verse 17, it says, awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. Again, the cup of God's wrath being poured out on the wicked and the unbelieving and the disobedient. Jeremiah 25. Verse 15, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. It's the cup of his wrath. Ezekiel 23, if you want some more insight on the cup of wrath, go read Ezekiel 23. But also in the New Testament, Matthew talks about the cup of wrath. Mark talks about the cup of wrath. Luke talks about the cup of wrath. Revelation chapter 14, verse 10 talks about this cup of wrath. He too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. This is the cup of wrath. It says he will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb. The cup of his wrath will be poured out on the wicked and the unbelieving. Verse 16 of Revelation, I mean, verse 19 of Revelation chapter 16 the great cities split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. And God remembered Babylon the Great. We know that's the system of the Antichrist. And gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. This is the cup of God's wrath that we have seen all through Scripture. But this time, it's Jesus drinking that cup. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This cup obviously speaks of the wrath of God. And I told you that the wrath of God was for the wicked and the unbelieving and the sinner. And if the wrath of God is for the wicked and the unbelieving and the sinner, what in the world is the perfect, holy Son of God doing drinking of this cup? He's drinking my cup. He's drinking the wrath that belongs to this wicked, unbelieving, wicked, awful sinner detestable in all of my ways. And there at the cross, he suffered the Father's wrath in full obedience. Jesus died for this sinner because the Father willed that he did. He bore my wrath, the wrath that belonged to me. 
Well, that changes the way we view Christianity entirety in this, entirely in this country, doesn't it? That Jesus bore the wrath that I should have paid for in hell. You say, well, pastor, that doesn't seem right. I know that's the most unfair deal in all the world for all you people who say you won't fare all the time. What fair is is hell for you and me. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this about Christ. That God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Showing us that He suffered the Father's wrath out of obedience to the Father's plan to redeem sinners such as I. And He went through with it in perfect submission and obedience to the will of the Father, submitting to the wrath of the Father. The wrath that belonged to you, the wrath that belonged to me. He said, shall I not drink the cup of the Father that the Father has given me? The Father at Calvary handed the Son the cup of His wrath. He obediently drank that cup in our place, proving that He truly is the Son of God who came to rescue the wicked sinner. He is the one who the prophets proclaimed would come and who would be the ultimate sacrifice, that He would die, that He would be buried, and that He would rise again from the grave. And He did all of that, revealing who He really is through His perfect obedience. The perfect obedience that Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 2, that he became obedient, even obedient to death and death on a cross. What a Savior Jesus is. What a God he is. Here John is showing us once again, revealing to us who he really is, just moments before he is arrested, falsely tried, falsely convicted, falsely crucified. Why? Why does Jesus want to present this clear evidence as to who He really is today? Why has He presented us with this message in this text in John? Why is this passage so important? And let me tell you this, it is of utmost importance. Why is it so important? So that you won't die in your sin. It's important so that you won't die in your sins because if you die in your sin, you will face the wrath of God in hell forever. It is important that you hear this message so that you won't die in your sins. Remember back in John chapter 8, verse 24? Jesus speaking to the religious people, He said, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. Who did He claim to be? God in flesh. The I am incarnate. He said, I told you you'll die in your sins if you don't believe that. Why is it important that we see that in Scripture? Why is it important that we look at these theological terms? Because I don't want you to think that Jesus was just a prophet or a man who did good things, that he might be the Savior. No, I want you to understand, and John wants you to understand, and greater than that, Christ wants you to understand that he is the Son of the living God who came to this earth to die on an old rugged cross to rescue the most awful sinner. 
And those who believe in him will be rescued, and those who don't, they will perish under the wrath of God. It's that plain and simple. Either Jesus bore the wrath for you at Calvary, or you will bear the wrath of God in hell forever. Which one is it? Which one is it? We play around with this topic far too often. It is that simple. If today was the last day of your life, would you stand before God having Jesus who bore the wrath of God on the ungodly standing as your defense? Or would you stand before God trying to find some defense of your own and you will fall dreadfully short? This is an important lesson so that you won't die in your sin. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe, he said to them in John chapter 8. You did not believe that I am the one I claim to be. And he tells them, you will indeed die in your sins. He knew that they were not going to believe who he really was and what he came to do. And he said, you will die in your sin. You're here today and you say, I don't want to believe in this Jesus. You will die in your sin. I can confidently tell you that. If you don't believe Christ and who he is, you will die in your sin. There is no exception. Why is this passage important? So you won't die in your sin, but also so that you will believe and have life. So that you will believe and have life. There's hope in this message. It is the sinner who refuses to repent. And he will not believe, who will die in their sin. But for those who believe, they will have Life and life eternal. John chapter 20, verse 31. We've referenced it many times already in this study. We will reference it many times more, and I can't wait to preach it when I get there. But 20, verse 31 says this, but these are written. What? Everything that John has said. Why is it written? Why is this important? These are written. These facts that John has pinned down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these are written that you may believe. Believe what? That Jesus is from Nazareth like this crowd did? No, that's easy. Just go over there. There's enough history surrounding that. It's easy to believe that Jesus was from Nazareth and that there was a man named Jesus. There's actually a hill that they tried to throw him off of. It's still there. You can go visit it. But he doesn't say that. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. For all these cults who think that they're, they're somehow saved and they deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, ma'am, sir, you are sadly mistaken. You must believe that he is who he said that he is. He is I am. He made no apology about it. He is God who came to this earth to rescue sinners of which I am the worst so that you will believe and have life. That's why he included this passage, so that you can know that he truly is the Christ. Oh, do you believe that Jesus is truly the Messiah? Yes, I have no doubt in my mind why everything in Scripture points to that. Everything in history points to that. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Perhaps today he's revealing that to you. Perhaps through seeing these facts today, finally the light came on and God has opened your eyes to see. You've never really 
surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, surrendering to who He is and what He came to do. I would say this to you, repent and believe on Christ today and be saved. Call on Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If He is opening your eyes to the fact that you need a Savior and He has shown you through this passage of Scripture that He is that Savior, that is Him working to draw you to Him so that you will repent and you will confess Jesus as Lord and Savior today, turning from sin and turning to, from unbelief and turning to Christ and Christ alone, the Son of the living God who came to rescue sinners like you and like me. What will you do with this information? Will you say, oh, nice fun facts? Will you fall on your face in repentance? Turning to Christ as Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing in your word exactly who you are so that we can believe and be saved. God, I pray for the soul who's here today who's never surrendered, never trusted in you by faith. God, I pray through the elements and the facts that we have seen in this message today that they see that you are who you really are. You are not just some historical figure or some prophet who lived to do good things. You're so much more than even a good man. That you are the God-man who was born of a virgin, who came to this earth, who lived a spotless and perfect life as our example, and then who willingly offered himself on a cross, to die in our place, to bear the wrath of God in our stead. Lord, may that person see that today, and may they cry out for you to save them, to forgive them, and to grant to them eternal life today as they surrender to you as Lord and Savior. For the Christian who's here today, Lord, may they rejoice in knowing even more clearly who their Savior really is. We love you, and we thank you for loving us. May your will be done now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281-689-1604. You can also visit our website at www.keylifefellowship.com. We hope and pray you have a blessed week. And remember, you are light in the darkness.